the curlew stood silent and unseen in the long, damp grass. And he looked down on the road below him that wound its way through Bale and the Blaw. And he heard the young men shouting and cursing, running backwards and forwards, dodging and weaving and ducking the bullets that rained down on them from the hillside opposite. Just as quickly as it started, the firing stopped, and a terrible silence hung over the valley. A lone figure lay on the roadside in the drizzling August rain. Dressed in green greatcoat, leggings, and brown hobnail boots that would never again set the sparks flying from the kitchen flagstones as he danced his way through a half-set. A hurried, whispered act of contrition, and the firing breaks out again. The curlew takes to flight, and as he flies out over the empty, sad fields of West Cork, with his lonesome call, he must tell the world that the big fellow has fallen, and that Michael is gone. Minister for Justice, uh, Ms. Well, good evening, dear friends, and, and I want to start by just expressing my amazement and, and uh, honour at being asked by Jimmy to come down. But I want to talk about Michael Collins, his, his role in our, the foundation of our state, and then I'll finish with some personal reflections which people like to hear from the family background. Um, there are two months in the year when, when Collins comes into my head very, very much, and that's in October, which was the month of his birth, and then in August, which was the month of his death. And I'm always reminded of the two great Irishmen who died within 10 days of each other in 1922. That's Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith. And Sometimes we forget about the role of Arthur Griffith in our history. There were two men who were the most in instrumental in negotiating the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which gave our country our independence. And near the end of the Dáil debate, Griffith paid Collins the following tribute. Michael Collins was the man whose matchless energy, whose indomitable will, carried Ireland through the terrible crisis. And though I have not now and have never had an ambition about either political affairs or history. If my name is to go down in history, I want it associated with Michael Collins. That was Arthur Griffith speaking about Collins. Griffith had his wish granted because these two men, the elder statesman and the young, zestful revolutionary who loved a bit of wrestling, who from January 1920 onwards together undertook the enormous and difficult task of translating the terms of the treaty into the Irish Free State. And in an essay written when he was 12 years old, now I always have to remind people, Collins was 31 when he died. So everything we talk about, Collins, think where you were when you were 31 and how much you had done for your country or for your family or whatever. <coughs> and I'm sure we all said, well, I hadn't done an awful lot. He had done this. But in an essay he wrote when he was about 12 years old, Collins revealed his unbounded, unbounded admiration for Griffith. In Arthur Griffith, there's a mighty force afoot in Ireland. He has none of the wildness of some I could name, thinking of himself. Instead, there is an abundance of wisdom 
and an awareness of things which are Ireland. Now that's from a 12-year-old, and I see one young man here now. You know, that's a very perspicacious statement for a 12-year-old to be saying. So it was appropriate that the two of them came together uh, to found an independent state. What the Irish people had wanted for so long was found in the treaty concluded by Collins and Griffith with the British between October and December 1921. Full self-government, the end of century-long rule of Dublin Castle, the withdrawal of the British Army and police, and democratic power in their own country. And the treaty gave virtual independence in all matters of practical governments, complete control of most of the territory, we know, not the whole lot, and its resources, an independent parliament, and an executive responsible to it. In short, really, the opportunity for Ireland to take its place among the nations of the world, which was Robert Emmett's great dream and often declared. Collins had what was rare then in Ireland, the power to dedicate himself without fanaticism. Uh, it might be said in auction room language that his constitutional ideas were his opening bids that have since advanced and been successful. He showed an extraordinary capacity for growth and development. He was a fighting man, but he knew when to choose peace, which is not something all fighting people know. He was a convinced Republican and he could see an alternative path to that destination. And even under the intense stress of the negotiations in London, he was studying and consulting concerning the evolutionary potential of the British Commonwealth. Now, I always remind people, there was no Google, there was no places to search for information. Where he got his information and studied what was going on around the world was just phenomenal. Uh, he came to believe that the integrity of Irish independence did not depend upon the symbol of the Republic or the Commonwealth, but upon the opportunities that it was affording Ireland to develop our own economic and social life. And he said, the true devotion lies in the steady, earnest effort in the face of actual possibilities towards the sol solemn, solid achievement of our hopes and visions, the laying of stone upon stone of a building which is actual and real and in accordance with the ideal passion. So he wanted to make sure that right from the start we were building a state that we could all be proud of and that all of us now can enjoy. And they, there was talk of the, you know, the British Commonwealth and you know, the, not everybody was happy about that. But the tragedy for Ireland in 1921 was that neither the Irish nor the British people had as yet seen the new vision that Michael Collins had. And ten days after the end of the conference in London, he placed upon the British delegates his memorandum on the future of Anglo-Irish relations. And Austin Chamberlain, who was one of the leading members of the British team at that time, described it as, and I quote, extraordinarily interesting, though sometimes perverse and sometimes utopian. But it foresaw, indeed, almost mapped out what lay ahead. Now, remember, these British parliamentarians were, you know, very significant world leaders. And here was this group of Irish men coming over, practically, you know, well, they probably had their Sunday suits on, but they were not sophisticated and highly educated in the same way as some of these British parliamentarians. And yet a man like Austin Chamberlain could have seen what Michael Collins was preparing along with the other people to look at how Ireland would be governed. And during the debates on the treaty, Griffith defended the agreement without pretense. It was not an ideal thing, he said. It could be better, but it had no more finality 
then they were the final generation on the face of the earth. And Collins put it even more cogently, and this is often quoted, it gives us the freedom, not the ultimate freedom, that all nations desire and develop, but the freedom to achieve it. And how right and how remarkably prescient he was when he said that. Within few short years of their death, the Balfour Declaration laid down the principles of Ireland's equality in domestic and foreign affairs. And he, he really and truly felt by 1937, Ireland, he felt that Ireland would be a republic in everything but name. And by 1940, in the 40s, under the Fine Gael-led inter-party government with John A. Costello, we declared ourselves a republic. So that was, that was all started back then. All of these changes had been achieved gradually and peacefully, uh, mostly peacefully. There was a bad period during the Civil War, but the treaty had indeed given us, as Mike Collins said, the freedom to achieve independence. He's often referred to as the lost leader. Um, I don't know what that actually means because, you know, men like Collins and Kennedy and people who die young, we always have this sense of romanticism that they were, you know, things would have been very different if they'd lived and they die as a young man or as a young woman and they're remembered in their prime of their health. But um, he's not entirely lost to us thanks to a book called The Path to Freedom. Now, I don't know whether it's still in print, but if you can get your hands on it, contains his articles and speeches written in his, when he was in his late 20s. And of this, the great historian F. S. L. Lyons wrote, direct, incisive, quick-witted, impatient alike of fools and doctrinaires, careless of former style, provided he could pound his meaning into the heads of those he sought to convince. All these qualities leap out at us from page after page. And I've read that book several times, and it's quite extraordinary, the essays in it, the recognition of where he thought Ireland should be going. He had a great and implicit faith in all of us, the Irish people, and he urged them to unite and set about um, to build a free and distinctive country. He realised that once, once the British forces had departed, the Irish people were free to arrange how they want their national government and their national life to run. And he said, if we wish to make our nation a free and great and good nation, we can do so now, but we cannot restore Ireland without a great, united effort, he declared. So much of his words are so relevant and still uh, true to today. He perhaps more than anyone else realised how great an opportunity was presented by our freedom. And he said, Ireland is one, perhaps the only country in Europe which has now living hopes for a better civilization. We have a great opportunity, much is in our grasp, and who can lay a finger on it? And he was also a very, had a very inclusive view of nationalism and all that it was regarded. Whatever form of government we had, it would be a government of the Irish nation, he said. All the other elements, the old unionists, the home rulers, the devolutionists, would have to be allowed freedom and self-expression. And the only way to build the nation solid and Irish is to affect these changes in a friendly, rational way. Not by compulsion, making them feel themselves welcomed into the Irish nation. Anyone who reads that book will see what a far-sighted man he was. What comes across from him is that he wrote his desire for a fair and equitable distribution of wealth. And he articulated clearly that wealth should be used to provide what? Good health, comfort, moderate luxury, and to give the freedom which comes from the possession of these things. 
how appropriate for today as well. He had no doubt that Ireland had the resources to produce such wealth, but he emphasised that it must be shared out fairly and we must aim at building a sound economic life in which great discrepancies cannot occur. He warned about the destitution of poverty at one end and on the other end an excess of riches in the possession of few individuals and beyond what they could spend. Like all his embracing views of Irishness, this goal too is surely one which we should still be striving and is relevant today as it was when the state was in its infancy. Land, he regarded as probably our greatest resource and around here now I can see the great value of land and he wished to see fair distribution. He called for the breaking up of the large remaining estates so that anyone who wanted land could get it and a new land act including the extension of the land commission was one of the first pieces of legislation brought in by Cumann Gael government a year after his death. And that was brought in by a man who lived close to here, uh, Paddy Hogan, uh, in Boulogne and Mirochrum, I think was where he came from. And he brought that legislation in, recalling Collins's desire for, for, for that la land, for that land to become available to people so they could look after themselves. He recognised that a shortage of adequate housing was a major social problem and to be solved. And in a short time, in this, as chairman of the provisional government, he had already begun to tackle the issue by making a substantial uh, grant available. After an initial spurt of house building in the 1930s, the problem remained largely untackled until the late 40s and early 50s. That was post-war uh, that allowed that. But it is really in recent decades that we've really got to grips with the housing situation. But he would be sad today to be looking at how our homelessness problem has arisen again. There was a time there in the 50s and 60s where we were able to provide houses for everybody. Maybe it's a sign of our prosperity, maybe it's a sign of all the people who are wanting to come back to Ireland and the fact that younger people want to buy their own property or live in their own property earlier than they used to be. They're not staying with mums and dads as long as they used to. He was also a long-time member of the Gaelic League and he was well aware of the need for a full overhaul of our education service. What he particularly focused on was to, the need to introduce far more scientific and technical education into Ireland. Where have you heard that in the last few years? Sound advice, looking at more of Gaden Quinn here who had a huge input in that. Sound advice which took far too long to be acted on and indeed Similar calls are still a perennial feature of our national life. I myself went and did science, wasn't so much because my grand-uncle had said that, but I just felt it was something I would like to do in the 60s when I left school. And so I was kind of following in sort of one of his desires. He shared Arthur Griffith's strong belief in the necessity of an industrial revolution in Ireland to provide employment at home for our people. And he was an early advocate of decentralisation urging that as far as possible the industries be dispersed about the country instead of being concentrated in a few areas. Again, what are we saying today? The same kind of thing. He was against excessive profiteering and insisted that employees would get fair wages and just wages. They, both Collins and Griffiths together believed that the fledgling Irish industries would have to be produced, protected by a system of, by introducing a system of tariffs. Now, it didn't always work out, and, and Collins and Griffith equally warned of the dangers of exploitation and profiteering that such a policy could encourage, 
and subsequently did. And as Griffith said, we must offer our producers protection where necessary. Protection does not mean the exclusion of foreign competition. It means rendering the native manufacturer equal to meeting foreign competition. And it doesn't mean that we shall pay a higher profit to an Irish manufacturer, but that we shall stand by him or her and not see them crushed by the weight of foreign capital. In fact, in between 1922 <coughs> and 1958, we were to experience much of what both Collins and Griffith had warned. They clearly wanted the minimum necessary protection and the minimum attendant costs um, to, to hit people who were trying to create jobs. He lamented the fact, um, I mean, there wasn't any area of policy he didn't actually touch on. He lamented the fact that while our seas around Ireland were teeming with fish, the Dublin market was depending on English sources for its supplies. The depressed state of the Irish fishing industry of its time dismayed him, and he urged its development, and the slow, painful nature of this process would surely have dismayed him even more. The need to modernise our transport and communication. Only this week we are talking about that again. He was also uh, had great concern of this, but the tragedy was that he had so little time to devote his talented mind to all these issues. He would be impressed now with a lot of the improvements, the DART and the Lewis and the train service, uh, but he'd be angry, he would be angry if, he wouldn't have known what Wi-Fi was, but he would be angry that there are large parts of the country that haven't benefited from those modern, that modern technology. I could just hear him saying, for Christ's sake, just get it going and stop messing around. It should be possible to produce it all over the country. <coughs> he also had a very far-looking idea about the marketing of our goods. Uh, marketing was not a word, I'd say, that was ever much used in, in those years. Uh, it, it, you know, people didn't talk about marketing, but we, we, we know that at the time he was aware that if we were producing good products, we had to be able to get a good um, market for them. And in a, some of his writings, I found an uncanny projection of the now existent financial services centre in the Customs House in Dublin. And he said, it will be important to create efficient machinery for economic marketing of Irish goods. A first step in this direction is the establishment of a clearinghouse in Dublin or the most convenient centre. It would form a link between the network of channels throughout Ireland through which goods could be transmitted, connecting with another network reaching out to all markets. It would examine and take delivery of goods coming in and out and dealing with the financial business. And believe it or not, he actually suggested the area around the Custom House as a potential for that. And years later, that's what happened when the Financial Services Centre was started. And he was really determined that the natural resources would be developed by the Irish government for all the benefit of all the people. And he didn't want the monopoly, as I said earlier. His successors in Common Gael began to create the semi-state sector with the setting up of the ESB in 1927. And I remember meeting an engineer who was involved in, in the electrification of Ireland and the stories are myriad about the, the fun of it, the, 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 the women around the country who put the workers up, the best bread, bread makers in the local communities. You know, it, it just engaged everybody. So without the setting up of the ESB, um, and the establishment then of all the sugar factories around the country. Work was very scarce, and these, these semi-state companies 
um, was greatly, this was greatly accelerated and expanded then through the Fáil governments and through the inter-party governments. And um, they were, you know, again, a far-sighted way of bringing Ireland out of the previous centuries where mostly people farmed or left school at 10 or 11 if they even got to school to that age. And now the semi-state system was beginning to create vibrant communities around the country. But as well as public investment, Collins always called for private Irish investment as well. He called for the repatriation of Irish capital because a lot of money was leaving the country. And he believed that the new Irish enterprises would provide excellent opportunities for investment for those who had the money to invest. And he urged the people to take advantage of these opportunities. If they did not, he warned that investors and exploiters from outside would come in and reap the rich profits. And what was worse, in his eyes, these foreign entrepreneurs would bring with them all the evils he didn't want to see coming into Ireland. He was eager to ensure good industrial relations. And again, reminder, no Google, no way of research, and yet he knew that there was very good industrial conciliation and arbitration systems in existence in New Zealand. Can you imagine how far away New Zealand was then? Um, and he was able to talk to people about that and say we need to look at some of the best examples around the world for setting up uh, good industrial relations. He envisaged workers enjoying the ownership and management of businesses, a phenomenon not practiced very widely in independent Ireland in 1922. Indeed, worker directors and semi-state companies are a much more recent direction, uh, strongly advocated by a former leader of my party, John Bruton, when he was Minister for Industry and Commerce. And um, a lot of private enterprises hit out against it. The one we always think of is Ryanair, but even Ryanair has succumbed now to recognising the need for workers' rights and to give workers their voice and their say. In, in my view, one of Collins's greatest attributes was its practical, realistic nature. And this can be clearly seen in his attitude to the continuing existence of the border. And God knows we've heard that word so often now, not having heard it for a long time. Hard borders, soft borders, flexible borders. God knows what kind of border. And I just wonder what he's saying above there now. It's important. I was saying to Jimmy, his late father, well, I hope he's up there now, talking to Michael Collins and helping send some wisdom down so that what ha what's happening now might be resolved and we, we don't suffer as much as some people feel. It's important to remember that Ireland was partitioned before Collins and Griffith embarked on the long and tortuous discussions uh, in the treaty. There are times when you think they created the partition. It was already there. Near the end of his speech during the debate in Dáil, Collins turned to the question of the six separated counties in the North East, desperately trying to inject into the debate the realism, which, is, which was one of his most outstanding characteristics. He did his utmost to persuade the Dáil that the Northern Ireland presented a complex problem not to be solved by any crude frontal assault. And, we have, and he said, we have stated we would not coerce the North East. What was the use of talking big phrases about not agreeing to the partition of our country? It was a fact of life. It existed, and the only way of dealing with it was to try to reach mutual understanding. So the Good Friday Agreement would have given him great cause for celebration and the end of the violence that that brought about. It's time, perhaps, that we reflect on his far-sighted ideas 
and make sure that we don't lose the benefits that we have gained as a country in the Good Friday Agreement. And that's why the present government and all the governments when Brexit started to emerge had to remind people the Good Friday Agreement, an international world a, a treaty that could not be just cast aside. He'd be heartened by the progress that's been made in the North, but I can imagine his frustration by the lack of the Assembly, by the fact that Sinn Féin uh, stand for the Parliament in the UK but don't take up their seats and that they haven't found strength and the courage to change that policy. Um, and he can, we can only guess how he would talk about Brexit, for God's sake, and the damage that it's doing to, the, to this country and to, the, and to the significant relations that have been built up on both sides of the border over the last 30, 40 or 50 years. He would be cross, to say the least, because he would be saying, look how much we have driven and gained, look the way we've been able to educate our people, house them, create jobs, and yet something like this now is likely to cause um, a, a great rift again. And the relationships that all of us in this room probably have somebody who got a good living in, in England, Scotland, <coughs> Wales, Northern Ireland, and the, the danger, my niece who's working in London, the Financial Services Centre, she's feeling the hurt. It is not easy now. It's not, not like it was when the IRA were bombing and killing people. But there's still a bit of tension building up, particularly in the kind of 30 to 40 year old age group with Irish people and their friends. Because there's kind of a sense, well, we're, we don't like what's happening, but we don't really like what Ireland is doing either. And that's sad to get that kind of tension back into the relationship. And, and, and really the best tribute we can pay to Michael Collins, I often think, is to measure our modern development against his far-seeing prophetic, prophetic uh, statements and ensure that if he came back tomorrow, he wouldn't find us wanting um, by letting down the state that we have built. And when I think of some of the things he did, I look back at the... Um, the family history that we used to be told about Michael Collins. And I just want to, for a few minutes, share some of that. One of Michael's <coughs> sister, Mary uh, Collins, um, who was about nine years older than Michael, uh, her, her granddaughter was asked one day in school, uh, or the teacher said, who is Michael Collins? And she answered, he was my granny's brother and he was killed. That's all she knew. And so she asked her granny, to write down what she remembered about Michael Collins. And there are some, it's a long, lengthy essay, but I will not go to read it all. But there are some kind of interesting little pieces in it. Um, she said, um, work was very hard on the farm in those days, as all the young people were going to America, and a great number of the parties were called American Wakes. My mother carried the heaviest burden. I remember Michael Collins' father was 60 when he married a 21-year-old woman. So he has a, there's quite a big gap in the age, and that's why she was having these children. And um, he's still a very powerful man. She said, Michael's sister Mary said, my mother carried the heaviest burden, and at this time she suffered greatly from pain in a broken ankle, which I suppose was never properly set. I remember the night before Michael was born. I was then nine. I held the strainer while she poured the milk fresh from the cow from very heavy pails into the pans for settling the cream. She moaned occasionally. I mean, I asked her, was she sick? She said she had a toothache and would go to bed when the cakes were made for the tomorrow. 
I was greatly troubled but said nothing. This is a nine-year-old. And uh, as in those days, children were to be seen and not heard. The next morning, there was the miracle of the baby. No doctor, no trained nurse, mother and baby well and comfortable. And to say that we loved this baby would be an understatement. We simply adored him. And old Uncle Paddy said, as soon as he saw him, be careful of this child, for he will be a great and mighty man when we are all forgotten. Now this was this woman doing that heavy farming work the night before she had that baby with the help of nobody. And this nine-year-old thinking her mother had a toothache. And it's a kind of innocence of it. And then another story she related, again, which gives us an idea. As I say, Collins' father was 74 when he was born. And he, his father died when he was just six, seven. But he loved his father and he went everywhere with him. So a lot of his early learning and his early character was being formed as he walked around the farm with his father and, and, and listened to the old man talk to him. I mean, it was like a great-grandfather almost. But um, Mary says also, from the time Michael could walk, he accompanied my father, who in his quiet way told him how to become a man. One incident I must tell, which occurred before Michael went to school. I was left in charge one day when all the grown-ups were at a fair. I suddenly realised that there were no potatoes. Having fed the calves and done other odd jobs, I went to the garden and found that Michael had managed to dig a large bucketful. In later life, when I hear of infant prodigies playing the piano, etc., and composing music at four years, I wondered, could they dig potatoes as my small brother was able to do at all? And, and, you know, it gave you an idea of the sort of, the kind of strength, even as a little small boy of four. Now, he had older brothers and sisters, so that very often happens with a younger child. But, um, like, when, it, when it, was, it was a great surprise when the family began to realise how much Michael had learned from his father. Father, interestingly, was the seventh son of the seventh son. Now, I know people around here probably know what that really specifies, but according to Irish tradition, he had healing gifts, especially for the livestock and the cattle and the horses. And, and so Collins had a great learning lesson from his, his elderly father. And I, I, knew my, I knew Michael Collins' brother, Sean, who was my grandfather, was my mother's father, and they were very close because when Michael's father died, Sean, my grandfather, Johnny Collins, as he was called, was 12 years older. So he was able to look after Michael as if he was a, his son. And um, my mother and my, and my mother's family never talked about Michael Collins because it was too sad. It was really a difficult time of their lives. And my mother recalls when we got older as children, we used to try and get stuff out of her. And when we were into, well into our teens, she talked one evening. And when I listened to that song there, I got quite emotional listening to it. And she talked about the day in which the Black and Tans came to burn down the family home in 1921. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was dying in the house in February when the Black and Tans arrived to burn the house. And um, there was a young... Um, she would have been called a maid at that time, Colleen Einshire, was minding these, all these small children. My grandfather was a member of Cork County Council and he'd gone up to a county council, not that day, but he was off doing whatever he was doing. He was also working on farms. And there was a bit of humanity. The young maid came out and said, there's a woman dying upstairs and there's all these small children here. 
have some humanity. She knew they were going to burn the house down and they went away. But they said, we'll be back when she's dead. And back they came in April when my grandmother died and they set the house on fire. The children got out. They got neighbours, which was so awful, to, to pile straw around, around the house and inside it and set it on fire. And the story my mother told, she was 10 and she said, she tried to run back into the house because her school bag was inside and her worry was that she wouldn't have her homework for the next day at school and, and, and she had to be stopped running in. One of the soldiers threw um, the child's cradle. My uncle was only a small babe in arms, another uncle Liam, and they threw his cradle out. And I think there was one or two other things, some blankets I think they threw out so that they, the, some bedclothes were removed. And... Um, she, she found that very hard to talk about because she remembered it. I mean, think of your own children if, when they were 10, 11, those years. They remember things, and she remembered that. And my grandfather remarried then um, after my maternal grandmother died, and he married a woman called Nancy Collins, who was actually a cousin, a removed cousin. Now, she was a, a character and a half. She worked for the, the British government in the GPO, they never realised who she was, which made me wonder about their, their security and their intelligence services. <laughs> she, used to, she used to bring out, she could copy down the, the, te the telegrams and that from, from her work, and she'd stick them, she went to the ladies room and stick them into her corset. She also wore a good bun on her hair, so she used to stick them into the hair, and she'd wander out and wave at the soldiers or whoever was there, and they never knew she was taking things out. She lived up in a place called Botanic Road and she, she often remembered and said to us, she said, I never could keep anything. I should have kept all this stuff. But she said, there were always raids going on and she was afraid that something would be found that would put Michael's life in danger. But she was, um, Michael had a lot of women uh, who were doing things for him. That's all I'd say. They, 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 were, they, were, they, they, were, they were minding up. They were minding teachers for him. They were, they were putting him up. There was lots of houses, as you've heard, where you know one house led into another through the attics. Little false doors had been put in. So that if somebody was raiding one house, he'd be able to slip, up, slip, slip through into other houses. And it was, we had a great network of people who helped him with that. But I remember, we called her Nancy, but I remember Nancy telling us that she was giving out to him one day and she said, you know, I don't think you appreciate all I do for you. And um, he said, oh, I do, I do. And she said, no, no, I think you appreciate because I'm a relative, you don't appreciate me as much. And the next time he came to collect some messages from her, from her that he used to throw a stone up to her window and she'd throw the messages down. And he threw a bag of bullseyes up to her and he said, there's a thank you now for all of <laughs> <laughs> Anybody too young in this audience probably don't remember bullseyes. But they were great sweets because they laughed and laughed and laughed. And I went to boarding school and anybody else did and you always wanted sweets that lasted a long time. None of your own soft coffee, jellies or chocolates. Something good like a bullseye. So Angie used to talk about the bag of bullseyes she got from Michael Collins, and she really, really enjoyed that. Um, I just think back to the time of all those people who lived at that time. My mother talked about they were never allowed to say who came to the house. They were never allowed to talk about neighbours and who was around because you never knew who was listening to you. And so if somebody came in the dead of night or somebody came in for a meal, you didn't say it even to your school pals, and you just kept quiet about it. 
because it was a difficult time and there was a lot going on in Ireland that was not good. Um, to finish up now, I just want to say Michael Collins and Churchill were, were actually recognised as the moral and physical courage. They were very close and Churchill and Collins seemed to recognise in each other a kind of kindred spirit and uh, Churchill was really engrossed um, and, and admired Michael Collins as an Irish patriot and a man of exceptional valour and he often praised him to his other colleagues in government. I didn't last much longer after the, the treaty was signed but when, he, when Collins was, was, was killed people would people from all walks of life and I know there's a mixed audience here tonight who would not all be naturally Fine Gael family or naturally Fianna Fáil. It doesn't matter what you are. Collins seemed to have got respect from all walks of life and many of the time I walked through Leinster House and Fianna Fáil TDs or Labour TDs would stop me and say, you know, usually when I was just on my own and they'd say, I just want to say to you, you know, even though I'm Fianna Fáil, my grandmother or my grandfather or my uncle or my aunt, they really admired Collins and I remember them crying, I remember them talking about Collins and it was a very moving thing to hear that this man of 31 had managed to cross across the borders of all our all society and create that love and, and, <coughs> and, and sort of respect for what he was doing for Ireland. And, and, I, and I remember my uncle Michal Collins, who was over there in Waterford and head of Clover uh, Meats, telling me that one very well-known man um, who was head of a big company um, and he had opposed Collins and he said to Michal, my uncle, he said, it's interesting what maturity does, he said. I know I was wrong now in not admiring what he was doing. And so I just recall as what are the things that me, Nora Owen, recalls as being a, a direct relative of Michael Collins. I was put on the New Ireland Forum in 1983. And as I walked into the Dublin Castle, um, you know, I remembered Collins standing there in Dublin Castle where somebody said, you're seven minutes late. And he said, you're 700 years late. <laughs> and, you know, and I went in there to Dublin Castle and the New Ireland Forum was the start of the kind of talk process that eventually led on all the way through to 1998 to the Good Friday Agreement. And I sat there as a very young TD feeling really honoured that Gareth Fitzgerald had put me there listening to, you know, the, now it was only the nationalists uh, that were there. There was no Sinn Féin people there, but it was it was really a very important, significant for me. When I became Minister for Justice, the first thing, and Maura very kindly left a letter for me. She didn't know it was going to be me. She left me a really nice letter saying, this is a great department, you know, I wish you well. And the first thing I did was put a little statue of Michael Collins on the desk <laughs> behind me. And it was always very interesting because whenever the television cameras came in, to, you know, the way they'd get the ministers at the desk, picking up the phone and dialing and doing all the things you could, they say, pretend you're on the phone or write, you know. Um, I always made sure that as the camera pointed at me, the Collins statue was behind me. <laughs> and I think I said to the Irish clients one time, you owe, me, you owe me some money because I suspect I sold a lot of these little busts for you. People kept asking me about it. When I was um, going to, to um, number 10, that was probably the most emotional time for me because I was the first member of my family to arrive at the door of number 10 since Michael Collins had been there. My entry and my arrival was so different. I'd flown over in the government jet. We'd been brought by helicopter from the local airport 
down to, to London and then by car to number 10. Michael Collins arrived through the treaty. He went to Mass at 5 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock, having gone over on the boat overnight. And then they went in the door, but Lloyd George wouldn't meet them at the door. He didn't want any photographs of them arriving. So they had to go inside and the door was shut. And then they, were, then they met the Prime Minister and the other, the other people who were going to be doing the discussions. And I sat there, I stood there, and I remember Dick Spring turning to me and saying, this must be a difficult moment for you to remember your arrival here with all the media and all the palaver and all the rest, and your granduncle's arrival here when he was doing the, when he was doing the treaty. And that, and that was kind of, um, you know, quite a moment. And, and I suddenly realised what was on my shoulders in a way. But I mean, I didn't want to blow myself up to anything, but it was just that you realised what we had been through all those years past, and here was I and Maura before me and other ministers who were able to sit down with the British government and discuss things and not be shooting and killing each other. And I'm going to finish. Um, Jimmy, thank you so much for asking me down. And Jimmy said to me when I, when I was in the car coming over, he said, oh, we, we got in touch with Lana Kilty and they sent us some, some black pudding. Well, now, let me tell you, Jimmy, the creator of Clonakilty Black Pudding was Michael Collins' grandmother. Joanna O'Brien, grandmother of Michael Collins from Sands Cross, she used to make her own black pudding out of the, the blood. But she obviously, she killed her pigs and got the blood and whatever else you put into it. Stuff, I don't know. We don't even want to know what's in it. And when she had surplus black pudding, she sold it to the then butchers in Clonakilty, Harrington's, which was then bought by the McSweeney's and eventually bought by Edward Toomey. And Edward Toomey was the first to market that black pudding as Clonakilty black pudding. And I thought about Michael Collins and I thought he would have been very familiar with the taste of that black pudding. And can, he would never have imagined that in years to come, his grandmother's invention or production a Clonakilty black pudding would almost be as famous as himself. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lauren. We'll take some questions now, so put up your hand if anyone wants to ask a question. Thank you. Just going back to uh, Michael himself and his, what he left in his writings and his books, mm. did you refer to any of the people that he did look up to other than his dad, you know, that he had such a wide. Um, foresight of different things. Like, has he talked to other people? Or uh, did he mention? No, he, no, he didn't bring in. He 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 went to London, as you know, when he was about fifteen or sixteen. So so he would have met people like like um, uh, Cusack and other people. He was very involved with the GAA. So in a way, the world leaders. It was very hard. To, there was no television and there was there was radio, but there was. But he seemed to have a way of getting information about what good things were being done. He was very interested in the Scandinavian countries because he seemed to know very early on that they seemed to be moving into a different phase of, of industrialization, development, and better things for their people. I don't remember any particular names that he mentioned in his writing, but... Um, I'm sure there were people that guided him along the way, but he was very, his sisters who were older than him, one was a teacher and one was a secretary, and they really guided him along. He just seemed to be a special kind of a young man that people were attracted to, and then in turn, he just seemed to know 
how to look forward. I, I just am amazed. I mean, those of us who are politicians here, you know how difficult it is to, to think about the policies you should be doing and how to revise them and how to amend them. He just seemed to have it instinctively, whatever was his talent. Thank you, tonight. It was Thank you very much. He was always impeccably dressed. Yes. I know that very occasionally he gave his sister and a whole who was That's sister. right, yeah, But yeah. he had to eat and he had to sleep. Mm. He had clothes, he had good shoes. Yeah. What did he live on? I think he lived on the, the, the kindness of many people. You see, he would have also... He also worked in London, so he would have had an income then. Uh, and, but at that time, Irish people, there were people around who would have been assisting him. As I say, he had this network of friends and people who minded him. A man called Bash O'Connor, who was a builder, one of the early builders who lived in Brendan Road. And uh, Michael, he had built a special room for him. He'd also built in his garden what looked like a rockery, but it was actually a hiding place for money and for some of the stuff that was being donated to help fight, fight the, the, the war, as it were. And, and so people like that put him up. And I imagine there was always somebody able to press his suits or wash his shirts. Um, there's no real talk about what he earned. He was an accountant and he worked with Craig Gardner as one of the accountancy companies. So I suspect there was an income coming in even though they mightn't have seen him that much in doing any accountancy, you know, as things went on, he was probably given the freedom to move out. But he was a qualified man, you know, so he was getting an income. And as I say, there was always people there to, to assist him. And, um, and he had so many bolt holes. He probably had more suits than the whole room put together here, so that whatever he ended up on that particular night, he was able to do it. I mean, it, it, it's... I mean, it's a real Scarlet Pimpernel kind of story in a lot of ways, his life. Any other? Yes. Yes. Uh, Jim Hogan, in his biography, um, mentions that his nationalism was partly formed by his teacher, Dennis Lyons. Dennis Lyons, yes, yeah. And uh, you quoted the, the essay you wrote in 2012, <coughs> and um, Tim Pat more or less says that maybe Dennis influenced influenced him in the writing, in his ideas for writing down. Yes. And, and also the local blacksmith. Yes, so there were people around him. Remember, he was a young fellow, fatherless when he was seven, so he was always wandering around, going into places like the, the blacksmith and all this, and listening to adults talking and exchanging. And he was very gregarious. So even as he grew up, and then he went off to London, but came back again, he was always like, even... The day he died, he, on his way to West Cork, he stopped off in Clonakilty on the way. My mother and, and her sister, Auntie Mary, pierced from the stole. And any of you know the stole there, but pierces were all the bets down there. And the two girls were there. They were getting ready to be sent to Ring College. And Collins arrived at a, 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 a relative's house, John O'Crowley's, and he was on his way. He had already met... Sean Collins, Paul, who became the head of the army in the Imperial Hotel in Cork. Then he went into Tonakilty, and the two sisters were there getting all decked out for going away. And they had a good chat. And then my mother said, he tried to kiss me goodbye, and I told him I was getting too old for kisses like that. And he hugged the two girls and went on his way, and that was the last. So Sean Collins, Paul, my mother and her aunt, her sister, 
and then he's called into the four alls, and some of you may have been there if you've ever been down to West Cork, he called in there to meet his brother Johnny or Sean as we knew him, and they were the last of the family that ever saw him, and then he continued on his journey, and then of course on the way back he, he died. So, so um, you know, his, 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 his lines, the teacher was hugely influential on him. And remember at that time, there were the head schools, there was a lot, I mean, reading some of the stuff, um, there was really clever people. I don't know whether we're as clever as we are now, because we don't have to remember stuff now, we can just Google it. I mean, I've even got into the habit now, somebody asks me something, I, I don't let my memory bring it recall. I, I actually just get onto the Google straight away. So we have to be careful not to lose the ability to remember and to reflect on what we remember. Anybody else? Okay, said too much. Yes, sir. You know the small um, the was in the forefront. Yes, yeah. Did you know him? No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he nobody knew who he was until quite recently. I mean, I think in the last ten years it emerged, and you're you're caught me now because I've forgotten his name. But he just happened to be there and and got photographed and. Um, I don't know whether it was he emerged, he probably didn't because he was probably passed on, but one of his family emerged. I mean, I get, not every week, but certainly a few times every year, I get more letters or memorabilia that people have. And maybe, maybe an elderly parent has died and they find this and they don't want it to get lost. So they send it to me or they send it to my brother, Michael, who's, who's a great historian and is the family kind of tree man. And Mary, Mary, my sister Mary, but not to get stuff as well. I have files there, you know. In fact, coming down tonight, I had to call a whole lot of stuff. I said, I can't bring everything down with me. But, you know, people just are finding things, you know, some of them finding memorial cards, some of them are finding letters. Um, somebody wrote me a lovely letter about Katie Sheridan, who was from Bohola. Uh, she was their teacher, and they remember her well. And, and so, these are important bits of memorabilia that we shouldn't lose, and thankfully the museums and the, the collections are growing now, and there's much more effort to try and remember these. There are people like Maria who are the heritage officers in the councils. There are archivists around the country, um, because it's easy to lose and forget where we came from. You know, we weren't always as prosperous and as happy as we are now. Not that we're always happy, but Jimmy here is always happy. <laughs> Well, I think the first part of your question is it was the ad adequately recognised. There were a long number of years when Collins was sort of kind of not talked about. And it's not his fault, but De Valera survived so long that as long as De Valera was still alive, you know, there tended to be a slight feeling that you didn't always talk about Michael Collins. And there's no doubt that the the the, the Jordan film made a big difference to the younger generation learning about it. And they created, okay, it wasn't all actors, but they created, it created 
a kind of figure of Collins and the kind of thing he did for the country. And it set people back to looking at his real legacy. And I think that was the best thing it did. I mean, you don't believe everything that was in the film, but it did set a legacy. And of course, everybody loved Liam Neeson. And, and um, he, he and myself and my sister got lovely photos of him. They used the Philly Gale headquarters for that film. They turned it into an old bank. And they took down all the pictures and put up all the wallpaper on it and put in desks <coughs> and everything. So there's little history there from that film. Um, I don't know that people sometimes worry about the commemorations and I go to Bale and Blow every year and then there's a mass every year up in, up in Berkeley Road. I think they're good things. I think people should remember these things and I, I don't think they should all be stopped just because somebody writes an article and says it's time we moved on and forgot about these. We have to remember and I hope when I'm dead and gone that somebody might remember one or two of the things I did as well. It won't be in the same kind of category as Michael Collins but like we all like to, to be remembered. I don't know whether, I mean the best we can do to remember Michael Collins and other people like him who helped to found the state is to make sure we protect the state, make sure we keep our democracy safe and make sure that we keep our people safe and that we provide adequately for them. That's the best tribute we can pay to him and I, and I hope and I think we will continue to do that. There'll be ups and downs and there are ups and downs now but the important thing is that we do protect our democracy because we are the oldest democracy in, the, in Europe now. We were, we were founded most of the others have gone through moments when they lost their democracy. We are the oldest. So that's, that's all up to us, particularly the younger fellows here, Ronan, isn't it? And, and some, anybody else who's under 30 who's here. You know, <laughs> the younger people who have to take over from us as we move along. Jimmy here now is under 30. And, <laughs> and, and the other Jimmy, I believe, I believe there are two great Jimmys here. They're not Jimmy one and two, Jimmy the Great and Jimmy, Jimmy the Other. <laughs> so I really think it's, it's been a wonderful evening and I hope if there's nothing else anybody wants to ask, I'll let Jimmy take over again. I don't know, Jimmy, whether you want to say something more. If there's any more questions, no, yes. Yes. One quick one. Yeah. I'm interested in his relationship with Harry Boland. I know in the movie yeah. it was the it was a very strong relationship and there's no doubt there was a falling out. I mean, the, the treaty did cause risks um, because it wasn't all that everybody expected. And um, so there was, but I remember at one of the Collins masses up in Berkeley Road, one of Harry Boland's relatives came up to talk to me and said, you know, we really don't want that break uh, to be be the legacy of Collins and Bowen. They were very close friends and they both did a lot for the country. So it, it, it was sad that it happened, but it will happen again in other ways. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Brexit, I'd say there's falling outs everywhere and, and, and they were, there's some, some rifts will never be mended. And then, of course, Boland, Boland died. And so it, it was a time of great sadness, but it was a time of sadness for lots of families. Brothers fell out with brothers, sisters fell out. I remember meeting an elderly man in my own constituency. He had been a 12-year-old boy during that time and he talked about, you know, running across the field carrying messages. But other members of his family were very angry about it and they used to fight with him for doing that. But he just wanted to help and he would go out in the middle of the night to carry messages. And, and he had to live with the pain of 
maybe his brother or sister finding fault with him. But he survived it till he was well into his 80s. I, I met him when he was well into his 80s. And you don't know when you're going around canvassing, as the others here will tell you, you don't know who you're going to meet. You're going to walk into a house and suddenly a flood of memories come back and they start recalling things that you never knew. And it's, you just sit there. God help us because you get no canvassing done. <laughs> you get so interested in what they're telling you. But I think the bowl in Collins Rift was a very tragic no, 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 yeah. How important was the presence of late Brian Linnan at the Collins commemoration yes. just a year before his younger? Yes. Well, thank you, Noel, for asking that because earlier on when we were having a bit to eat here, I was saying to him, I was really, really pleased when Brian Lennon was asked by the committee, it's a non-family committee who run Bain of Law, and one or two of Fine Gael TDs came out strongly and said he shouldn't have been asked, and I was very angry about it, and, and voiced that, as did my sister, because they came to us immediately, and um, I said to Brian, I said, I really am pleased. Remember, Brian was Minister of Finance at a very difficult time, so was Michael Collins, and there was absolute... Um, certainly that they would have understood each other because they were both battling a very difficult economic time. And so when Brian came down, the first group that arrived was a large bus from Castleknock, Brian's hinterland, and about 50 women, mostly women, got off the bus. They were all his supporters and they came out and I was standing near the bus and they were coming over and thanking me that I had welcomed Brian, and then I got all the family members who were there, Michael Collins, Paul, and my sisters and brothers, and we lined up in a line where Brian's ministerial car was going to land, and the first people he saw when he got out was all the Collins extended family, and we shook his hand, and he was very emotional about it, and he thanked us, and went up and gave a great speech, and really got a great welcome. And that was an important step in, in the passage of our livelihoods here in Ireland. So thank you, Noel, for I should have remembered that. And he actually asked on his deathbed that the picture, photograph of him giving the oration that Michael Collins and Spain of Law would be on his coffin. And I was at his funeral and I saw that picture on his coffin. So that was a wonderful day. Thank you, Nora. What a wonderful um, insight into Michael and his, his political life and also the effects his life had on his family. So, thank you very, very much. On the far off August day, cold young men in ambush lay on a roadside by a hill where flowers grow. So much hate for one so young Who was right and who was wrong Though a thousand years may pass We never know Candles dripping blood The place beside your soul Rosary beads Like teardrops on your fingers Friends and comrades standing by In their grief they wonder why Michael, in their hour of need You had to go 
And when evening twilight came, gently fell the autumn rain. Oh, but you lay still and silent on the ground. As we hung our heads in prayer, in our sorrow and despair, we wondered, oh, was it friend or foe who shut you down? Candles dripping blood, they placed beside your shoulder. Rosary beads Like teardrops on your fingers Friends and comrades standing by In their grief they wonder why Michael, in their hour of need You had to go Now the flame that you held high When you called out to the sky To end this senseless killing And this shame Has now passed to other hands And is carried through the land By some not fit to even speak your name Candles dripping blood They place beside your soul Rosary beads Like teardrops on your fingers Friends and comrades Standing by In their grief They wonder why Michael In their hour of need You had to go Michael In their hour of need Why did you go